It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. We've got blogs. Well, that's it. Got the map of the week. Adventures in art. Le Chadron Comatique. Oui, oui. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater RPG Show. Welcome to the Thought Eater Thought Pass. <laughs> what is up, everybody? It is Froth here, back again with the Hump Day RPG Show. I hope you are doing well. Very much appreciate you listening. What is this show? If you've never listened to it before, uh, it is a weekly celebration, basically. Celebration of the DIY RPG scene. I share cool blog stuff, zine stuff, free stuff, maps, random tables, bunch of stuff I noticed throughout the week. I talk about them here, ramble about them, to be honest with you here on the podcast, and then I put all the links I discuss up over at my blog, the Thought Eater blog. All the links will be in order over there, so you just Google Thought Eater blog, and you should be able to easily find it. If you're a blogger, go ahead and slap it on the blog roll. Do it. Do it. Big show today. have a very special guest, Michael T. Lombardi who is behind the Pentala setting and has a catalog chimerical currently kickstarting as part of Zine Quest 3 on Kickstarter. Yes, Zine Quest 3, we're we're out of February, but there are a few projects out there still need some love, still need some eyes on them. So we are going to kind of go out in style talking about some Zine Quest stuff today. Uh, and I think the interview is really good because uh, even if you're not, you know, I can never imagine this being a possibility that someone's not into zines. But a lot of the discussion is about some cool GM stuff, NPC design, uh, rumor tables. And so I think it's a really good discussion. I think people will enjoy that. Got all the usual features. A couple of other things real quick. Uh, for my five minute Friday podcast last week. I was talking about funny character deaths. You know, it's a lot easier to have your character die when when they die in a funny way, right? And everybody should have some amusing stories, I would think. So what I'm hoping is that some more folks, I've gotten a few calls, but I'd love for a few more folks to call in. If you have a funny character death, I'm going to play these on Friday. You go to anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Even if you're on your phone or your PC, there's a little message button there. You can just leave a quick message, and I'll play it on the show. So if you have a funny character death, don't be shy. If you're a longtime listener and you've never called in, don't be shy. Anchor.fm forward slash Thought Eater. Call in and let me know about a funny character death. As always, I like to ask for support. I would love to have more supporters on the Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Thought Eater. You can support for its little bit you know, as little as a dollar a month. So it's, it's not going to hurt your wallet too bad. I know money's tight, but if you listen to the show every week and can chip in a dollar a month, that would be awesome. Anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Got a call from Jason from nerds, RPG variety cast. Jason's forgotten more about RPGs than froth may ever know about last week's final topic 
where I was talking about debilitating conditions, game conditions happen to your PC that aren't death, but they still knock your player out, uh, cause them to be unable to act for most, if not all of a session or what have you. So let's listen to that. Hey, Froth, Jason here. So reference your final topic, Colin over at um, Spike Pit RPG Podcast did a series on, you know, lose a turn mechanics. I can't drive in the car right now, but I didn't see it with a quick glance up and down his podcast. He's been moving his episodes around lately, deleting things, remixing things. So maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it'll come out as a retread at some point. But, you know, effectively, I think at the end of that discussion, we decided if combat goes really quickly, then it's not that big of a deal. But if, you know, each round goes really quickly and you miss a round, it's not a big deal. But if, in his case, he missed like two hours, his online game is because of character was paralyzed or something, he missed like two hours of play, he just sat there, which really sucks. Also, as far as zine quests, I think I'm up at 28 or 29 now. Newport just dropped a new zine, and of course I have to back that, so... I went well outside my goal. I'm somewhere between four and five hundred dollars, I think. You know, if and I'll probably end up back in thirty scenes when I'm done. So, yeah, I wasn't planning on doing anything like that. So, I blame you, Froth. No, I'm just kidding. It's not your fault at all. Um, anyhow, thanks for all the great work you do. Keep it up, and talk to you soon. Good to hear from you, Jason. Again, Jason does the Nerds RPG Variety Cast podcast, and yeah, you know sitting out paralyzed for three, you know, for three hours or whatever. I, you know, it's just not fun. There's gotta be a better way. Yeah. I've always, you know, like I mentioned last week, I've always tried to move those mechanics out of the game or, uh, I think that is, you know, obviously the, the shorter the rounds, the quicker they, they go, maybe it's not as big a deal, but, but it, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. I guess that's the main thing to keep in mind. As far as the Zine Quest stuff, I can't help you there. I mean, I went over my goal too. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go, so, I didn't go that far over over my goal. But uh, you know, and it was tough because there were so many other things I wanted to back. It, it's really hard to kind of draw the line in the sand when when you keep seeing so many cool projects from people who you just want to throw money at anyway. And uh, but it is what it is. You know, it's. You have to be selective and, and just do what you can do. So anyway, good to hear from you. Uh, let's see. So the last thing I've got for the intro today, I did have a couple other calls, but they were about topics that were like, you know, four weeks ago now and everything. So just in the interest of, interest of people being able to follow along and know what's going on, uh, I'm going to, you know, leave those out. But to the folks that called in, know that I appreciate it. Please know that I appreciate you listening. Um, and participating. So, um, and I know my episodes are long, and so sometimes people aren't going to listen to them, uh, not even in three settings, you know, uh, sittings. So, but anyway, last thing I've got, this is under the intro tab. I always try to welcome new bloggers to the blogosphere when I spot them. And so this one just launched here, in, yeah, 21st of February. The Ain't No Walls blog. Ain't No Walls, uh, an old school blog, but it's kind of geared towards 5th edition stuff as well. So Ain't No Walls kind of bringing together different generations of gamers and everything. So I want to give out, give a shout out to Ain't No Walls. Welcome to the blogosphere.
Maps of the Week. All right, so let's look at the maps for this week. A couple of good ones. The first one I had spotted uh, over on Reddit. You know, there's a lot of cartographers that'll post their wares over there, then link you to their Patreon, you know, looking for supporters. This one is for The Burge, patreon.com, The Burge. And this map just made me gasp. It's one of those maps where if you flip it up on like an online VTT while you're playing and you're like, hold on to the players, give me a second, let me switch maps. And then they see this, it's like fear of death, you know, heart skips a beat because it's a bridge over a huge chasm. And it's beautifully done. It almost looks like a photograph. It's just extremely, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous map with great uh, shadows and everything. It looks really, really natural. And, 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 and it also looks very deadly. Nothing like having a battle over a bridge, you know, covering, you know, spanning a chasm. Uh, you know, that will get the, the blood flowing. So take a look at this. I, I thought it was a jaw dropper. And uh, if you like that, you want to see more of what they're doing, I've got a link to their Patreon where you can check that out. And then going from the new school to something very, very old school, uh, over at the DM David blog, a blog I really enjoy reading, dmdavid.com. They did a piece called Nine Facts About the First D&D Module, Palace of the Vampire Queen. So I have a kind of bootleg old copy of Palace of the Vampire Queen. Uh, kind of an interesting module. It's, there's a lot of empty rooms and kind of empty space compared to to modern modules. But one of the things that's really interesting about it, and the reason that I, I put this under the maps, is the maps are actually quite good considering how old the product, you know, the product is, and just how presumably there weren't a lot of, you know, there weren't a lot of other uh, products out there to kind of key off of, and you know, people pushing each other and influencing each other into different map styles. The maps are actually quite interesting and kind of clean, really, for the time, um, especially for having a hand-drawn feel. So I like the maps for uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen. It's probably my favorite part about the module, to be honest, is the maps. But uh, but anyway, so check that out. And if you've never heard of that module, there's some interesting historical tidbits and everything over at the DM David blog, so you can learn more about it. Zine Club. All right, so I am thrilled to have as a special guest joining Zine Club today, Michael T. Lombardi, creator of the Pentola setting that has been developed over a series of different zine projects, including a catalog chimerical, which is currently kickstarting as part of Zine Quest 3. Michael T. Lombardi, welcome to the club. Hey, how's it going? I am doing well, and I am looking forward to discussing your Pentola setting and some of the products that you've done in the past. But first, I always like to ask folks about their, uh, call it like a super villain origin story, your zine origin <laughs> story. <laughs> sure. Do you, do you recall what the first zines you saw were, and were they gaming related or something else? Yeah. Um... So the first zines that I was aware of were um, actually like the kind of punk anarchist uh, series of zines uh, that float around. Um, I ended up reading some of those online um, before I got into gaming zines at all. Um, and then when the first zine quest came around, I was watching it happen and I'd been exploring a trying to figure out how to how 
much density I could shove into a single piece of paper, uh, which had led me to the idea of taking a piece of paper and folding it in half and turning it into a like uh, mini booklet, right? Um, just a bifold, uh, so you could have content on all four sides uh, and then play with the presentation. Um, and ZineQuest was happening, and Don Stroud uh, was running um, Lesser Key to Celestial uh, um, Kingdom? Legion? I think it's Legion. Yeah. Um, and I'd been talking off and on uh, about the work I was doing, and I mentioned uh, offhandedly that technically a single piece of paper did meet all of the requirements that ZineQuest had set down, and then Don got at me and was like, you should just do it. There's literally nothing stopping you from doing a, a ZineQuest project. Um, so I did, and uh, I was terrified of the tax implications, so I didn't want to make any money. So what I did instead was I just kept uh, pulling more and more people in to write a zine and illustrate it. Um, and we ended up with 21 contributors across 16 zines, uh, each by a different person or team. Uh, which was a lot of fun uh, and enormously uh, huge amount of work for a project runner who was getting no money. <laughs> yeah, and so right now you're talking about Beneath the Canals for listeners that do, do not know. This was a yep. tremendous, really excellent project. Um, I was a happy backer and, you know, so this was 16 different what people might refer to as pamphlet zines supporting the Pentola setting. You had a number of notable uh, DIY creators such as Zedek Sue, FM Geist, uh, you already mentioned Don Stroud, I mean Dungeons and Possums did one. I printed these all out and I can tell folks if you have not checked out this Beneath the Canals I will have a link up to the store so you can check this out but you really elevated the idea of pamphlet zines to high art. The layout is unbelievable. The artwork was unbelievable. The content is great. I mean, these are not, you know, simple thrown together little pamphlet zines by any stretch there. I was really blown away by it. Yeah, it was a, a lot of fun. And I learned a huge amount on the project, both as um, like project organizer runner, um, for example, uh, when we went, uh, when we funded uh, and uh, I started paying people out for their scenes, Don DM'd me and he was like, hey, did I miss the uh, info packet for the collaborators? Uh, and I had to confess to not knowing what the hell an info packet was in this context. Uh, so then I had to quick write one uh, and send it out. But um, working with a wide range of writers and artists for that project was just such a, like, I, I could not have paid for that opportunity to get to sit down and talk with so many people about their process. Um, Takamo Okada, um, we had, uh, Mabel was on board for some of it. Um, we borrowed um, uh, Lulu Bird, the artist for GMDK. Um, and then Jay LaBelle had partnered up with me for the initial zine uh, and sort of ruined me as far as what I expected from uh, artist collaborations going forward. Because uh, Jay has that magical ability to take whatever silly words you string together and you're trying to explain as a writer what the art is that you want, actually understand what you really meant, and then give that to you. 
Um, I uh, I have a friend that is that way with music, where it is almost like a psychic ability or something, where I can just suggest something, maybe just offhandedly mention a song from thirty or forty years ago. <laughs> and they just kind of inherently have the ability to not only know what I mean in terms of, you know, putting the song together and how the structure goes, but they have uh, some kind of encyclopedic encyclopedic memory of, of keyboard sounds from the 80s. So I know what you're talking about there when you work with somebody that is able to intuit so easily what you mean without you even using the uh, all the words, right? Yeah, it's uh, truly uh, um, magical to watch, right? I was astounded every time I got art. Uh, and I learned during that project that um, one of the truest joys of doing publishing is being able to throw cash into people's accounts. Uh, I, I don't know a better way to explain it than like the moment that you pay out to people feels uh, like a giant rush of adrenaline because you know that you've just put some food in their in their table uh, and you're about to get some really kick-ass work back. It just feels good. You know, it's 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 funny you mentioned that because it's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, but I was going to do it maybe later in the interview. But but one of the ways that I kind of crossed paths with you on Twitter, one of the things I responded to at least was like a spirit of generosity that you seem to have with promoting other people's work and shining a light on other people. That's something that I personally respond to. What is it what do you think it is that gives you that kind of generous spirit um some of it is uh playing follow the leader um i can't take credit for for like coming up with the idea to do that myself uh when i first came into the scene dungeons and possums um was one of the first people who kind of uh gave me any real interaction talked to me um and I just saw him endlessly hyping and uh, raising everybody else. And then after a little bit of time in the scene, I've come to believe pretty firmly that the enemy of indie isn't anybody else in indie, but visibility. Um, and that was really confirmed for me after Beneath the Canals. I still get emails uh, and Kickstarter messages from people who are like, oh, I didn't know that this was happening. If I had known, I would have backed it can I still give you money? And it's like, you absolutely can. <laughs> Here's the link. Uh, but it's, it's, there's so many more people would buy indie stuff if they knew it existed. And we have such a hard time reaching those folks. So the way that I look at it is, um, I have a deep and abiding interest in making sure that the scene thrives, um, both as a consumer of the scene, right? I love the work that's out there. I really want to get more of it. Uh, and it occurred to me that if people can't pay rent and buy food, then they can't make art. Uh, and that seems important to make sure they can do. Uh, and then also as a creator in the scene, um, I thrive creatively on other people's works. I am, I self-described before as like uh, Dr. Frankenstein, right? Like I'm a kit basher at heart. I don't usually have anything truly novel to say, but I have an iterative take on stuff that's come before, or I'll take two things that I like and smash them together. Um, and people seem to respond to that. And that only exists in a thriving scene. Um, and then beyond that, I think some of it's just solidarity. Almost everybody who's working in the scene has struggled with this. 
and knows what it's like to have a project that doesn't get noticed or doesn't get picked up. Um, and that feeling sucks and everybody hates it. And I know when somebody picks up and retweets anything that I've done, it's um, a really truly impactful part of my day. So I figure it costs me, what, eight seconds to throw together a tweet and send it out. So it just seems like almost the least you can do to kind of um, be a, a good citizen of the scene. That is very well said. And you actually lead me into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is your attempting Tefra project that came out, you know, following Beneath the Canals. Again, supporting Pentola, but something that can really be used for a wide variety of fantasy settings. And when you mentioned kind of kit bashing, and maybe it's nothing new, but you're doing your own twist on it. Um, some of the things I really liked about this, for people that don't know, it's kind of like a collection of random tables, but they're, you know, uh, on, on different subjects. Um, and the, the things that I wanted to talk about were, in particular, the NPCs and the way that you handle rumors on this, or as you refer to them in this project, is hearsay. So there's there's been a lot of discussion about kind of how much information you know, what's the right amount of information to present with a, a GM for for NPCs? You know, how much is too little and, and what is not enough? And, and so in this project, you list things like how they seem like, and that could be, they seem young, uh, you know, or they seem tired, you know, how they seem, things that they want, which are kind of like motivations things that they have, which can include clothes and things like that, things that they keep, which are kind of unique things that they maybe keep that are special to them, and then things that, are, that they know, which are things that you can maybe learn from them. And I just thought this was such a great breakdown of the basics of, of, of things that you would, you know, really need to, to sketch out for an NPC without going any further. And then, I, you know, you give a little bullet point for each of those so you can almost kind of pick and choose what, what's appealing to you. Is, is your approach to NPCs, did that come from you know, from your own personal gaming or looking at other products or how did you settle on that? Because I really, really like it. And it's almost like a model that I'd want to use for NPCs in my games. Yeah. Um, so some of that is uh, when I write up NPCs, I try to have a model on uh, both what ex people external to the NPC know, uh, which is where seams comes into it and then um, internally consistent stuff so that the ref can run the, the NPC, right? Um, but the structure of that is borrowed heavily from uh, the NPC entries in Dead Planet and A Pound of Flesh, particularly A Pound of Flesh. Um, one of the things that I loved about those Mothership adventures was they present somewhere between like three and five NPCs on a single A4 or A5 page and yet they're so easy to run because they give you enough information um, to, to run the character to kind of get a grasp of who they are. And more importantly, they're things that I couldn't just make up sitting down at the table, right? Like uh, they put together a, a character who is interesting and has uh, a, a really 
strong characterization um, without me having to read three pages of lore on on why this NPC is the way they are and what happened to them in the past. And like, those are things that we can honestly make up at the table. Like, uh, you know, this person has a grudge against so-and-so. Why? Well, what would be interesting about that, right? Like you can you can spin that out or you could use that as an opportunity to hook it into ongoing plot threads. Um, so the idea for the structure was to give you enough to run, but to make sure that whatever we've given you is enough that the character is interesting without you having to uh, make up all the interesting stuff yourself, which I find a lot with uh, NPC stat blocks in trad games in particular. Well, I, I think you did a really good job with that. And the other thing that I really liked is like the rumors or the hearsay. And what was kind of unique about your approach is, you know, plenty of people have seen, you know, rumor tables, you know, they're in, you know, dozens of games of supplements. But what I liked is that your rumors, your hearsay would evolve. So it might start with, you know, I heard this person was attacked. It was strange. You know, and that might be where a traditional rumor table might leave it. But you've got kind of a time ticker that goes along with it so that that rumor continues to develop and change over time. Like maybe a week later, that person that made the attack is spotted again. Or uh, you hear about a faction in town that is trying to find out more information about it. And it kind of gradually grows and changes. And that can be something in the backdrop of the setting that's going on that might eventually, you know, rope the players into a, to an, to an adventure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that approach? Cause I really like that rumor approach. Yeah. Um, so this is another kit bash of uh, a bunch of disparate things that I liked. Um, and the background context for it is that I tend to run um, sandbox games um, where there's always lots of stuff going on. And, and one of the things that I like to pressure players with is there are five things happening. You obviously can't get involved in all of them, but they're not waiting for you. Uh, one of the problems I always have with like open world video games, for example, is they set up a storyline and then you go off and do seven or eight side quests and the storyline is still there in the exact same state that it was when it was announced to you. Uh, and that for me kind of breaks the immersion. Um, and so I think it presents players with a really interesting choice if you have two or three of those rumors active and they're going to update at unpredictable times um, and kind of advance. And it, it gives the players a little bit more verisimilitude. They think that the, you know, the setting isn't just waiting for them. Uh, they have to go out and do stuff. Uh, it also applies pressure because mostly the rumors get worse uh, as time goes on, right? Because the idea is the timelines for the hearsay are what happens if the players don't get involved. Because the moment players get involved, any timeline goes out the window, right? Um, it's extremely hard to, to keep a timeline once players start interacting because they're going to take things in absolutely unpredictable directions. From a structural perspective, this was my attempt to wrestle with clocks. Um, I've read clocks a bunch, uh, and they never really clicked for me, and I had a hard time kind of thinking about a way that I would like to use them. And then uh, that is mashed up with, again, from Mothership, the um, timelines uh, in both Dead Planet and A Pound of Flesh. They have these uh, great um, sections where it tells you exactly what's going to happen if the players don't get involved. And generally, again, because those are horror, 
even more so than in the hearsay tables I wrote, things get much, 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 much worse uh, if you don't get involved. And you can't necessarily fix everything all at once. Uh, and so that puts on some good time pressure. What I wanted was to take the timeline idea, make the advancing of the timeline unpredictable, and um, be able to have multiples of those uh, come into play. So once I uh, figured out that structure, I started using it in my own home game. Uh, and I found it wildly effective for driving player decisions. Yeah, it's it's really, really well done. So um, I, I really enjoyed uh, both your take on rumors and the NPCs uh, tremendously and the Tempting Tefra um, supplement. So let's talk now about what you've got kickstarting now, a catalog chimerical. And it looks like a supplement that's going to be dealing with a lot of different magic items. It looks like there's going to be a very kind of innovative art element to it. Tell people what they can expect from this project. Yeah. Um, so following uh, from my last two scenes, which both included some system agnostic magic items, um, this is going to present 144 new magic items. Um, but the framing of the zine is as a in-world magical mail order catalog um, written by uh, an archivist for the Eidenlar uh, suzerainty, the nominal overlords of Pentola. Um, and so one of the interesting things about them is that they're a sort of theomagocracy. Um, and uh, I've brought in um, B. Sherry as a uh, world-building consultant. Um, so they've got a lot of interest and expertise in writing up uh, religions, and in particular, writing religious schisms and heresies. And so the thing that I want to kind of use this zine as an exploration of is how this very hierarchical, um, theocratic, uh, magic-centric culture, how an agent of that culture changes as they spend time in Pentola, um, which, you know, has extremely different uh, values and, and beliefs from what they're used to. Um, and so I wanted to explore the idea of uh, cultural mixing and how people change over time, as well as present just a giant list of fun magic items that you could drop into your games. Um, and the I've had a long-standing frustration with magic items in a lot of supplements uh, where they're only interesting by their mechanical effect and the mechanical effect is often not very interesting. Like, it does an extra D6 fire damage. Cool. That's it. That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't feel very magical, right? Uh, once you establish that magical effects are a thing, um, having something that doesn't have uh, triggers or doesn't have like an interesting activation effect or doesn't have a drawback or a cost or something like that. A lot of those items just feel very, there's, they're kind of like hitting a button in a video game, right? Uh, you just you load it into your inventory slot and then you forget about it unless it's really useful and, and necessary. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed a lot about uh, game design, particularly in the old school space has been lateral character growth. So you don't get more powerful abilities, but you get more options to deal with problems. Uh, and in particular, I think magic items are a great way for people to find lateral applications that are unexpected and, and 
actually unpredictable based on the item's uh, write-up. Yeah, and you know, creating magic items has always been like a blind spot GM thing for me. Uh, I I struggle with the approach, and I think part of it is like you're talking about. You know, I, I'm thinking. I think in terms of mechanics, when uh, thinking thinking about the whole thing and the the design of the item, the appearance of it, and tying that all together is something that's important. Now, I was looking a little bit on your Kickstarter, and and it looks like there's kind of a, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of an individual approach where people at certain levels can have kind of specific things designed just for them. Yeah, um, the uh, sort of, I guess, uh, the tier for people who have money, uh, right, which offsets the cost for everybody else, is the artisan tier. Um, so what that'll involve is a, a one-hour call with me, Zoom or Discord or whatever, uh, and we will work together to design one of those NPCs using the same structure um, that we were talking about earlier. Um, and then we will write up six items by that NPC, so things that they've brought into the world. So in Pentola, um, one of the, the key uh, conceits of the setting is that the world is super saturated in magic, right? Um, everything's covered in it. Uh, for reasons we could talk about if we want, but um, the long and short of it is if you are an artisan and you're passionate about your craft and you're skilled in your craft, you cannot help but make magic items. The things that you make with your hands are magic. They were full of magic and then you applied your will and your skill and, and who you are to them. And that act itself creates a magic item. Um, and so the idea for these artisans is we're writing up a passionate um, character who is skilled at making things. And then six of the items that they've made that kind of tell you a little bit more about them, but also are things that you could just give to players. I think that is really cool to have a unique kind of unique tiers like that, where uh, if somebody wants to, they can get a really kind of, personal unique experience out of out of the project so I, I think that's really neat yeah um it also funds uh each each one at that level will also fund a physical community copy uh, in addition to the digital community copy so um it gives them something neat and then makes sure that somebody who can't afford to buy a physical copy of the zine can still get their hands on it which uh has been important to me since tempting to fra I wanted to make sure that uh, after a conversation with uh, Fiona, uh, Fiona Geist, um, FM Geist, uh, we had a long conversation one night about um, how people deserve access to art, to beauty, um, to creativity, regardless of their financial circumstances. Uh, and so... If you've got the money to pay for the thing, by all means, pay for the thing that keeps the scene alive. But it's also important to me to make sure that people who don't have that same access, who don't have that same fiscal safety net, are able to get their hands on stuff too. Um, not just in digital form, which we've been seeing proliferate a lot, but also to be able to hold the physical item in their hands. Let's talk just a little bit about just the Pentola setting in general. If someone just said, hey, Michael, uh, here you've got a Pentola setting. What's it all about? How would you describe it to them? Uh, in a sentence, which is, you know, probably not enough, I would say that it is a, instead of high fantasy, it's hyper fantasy. And it takes place in a Bronze Age-ish world. 
that is going through a magical uh, revolution uh, in terms of what people know and what people are doing. Um, and the city itself is a megalopolis that is a sort of mashup of the Southern Mediterranean and uh, Venice. Um, so there's spires and canals and catacombs um, and a long history of habitation in the city, a riot of uh, stuff that is continuously changing. Um, they're shifting power structures. So it, in a way it plays largely into picaresque. I've struggled for a long time trying to like figure out what the right uh, tags are uh, for a, a storefront for Pentola. And um, I've been describing it as a, a toy box picaresque, uh, which just means that I added new jargon, which is not necessarily helpful. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been tough to kind of quantify. But um, at a zoomed out level, uh, you're playing in a giant uh, megalopolis, a sort of super Rome-sized uh, ancient city, uh, which is set on a toroidal world, which is donut-shaped, and the moon bobs up and down through the middle of the world. Um, so there's some weirdness that happens there. Um, for a toroidal world to be stable, it has to spin extremely fast. So Pentola goes through three day-night phases in a single 24-hour period. And then uh, a lot of the fun of the setting design has been figuring out what the ripple effects are. Everything's magic, so what does that mean? Uh, everybody goes through three cycles of day-night. What does that do to uh, the way that people organize themselves and do work? Um, what does the bobbing moon mean for the tides? So there's a district of Pentola uh, out in the bay that floods so regularly that all of the buildings on it are tethered uh, and they float up and down with the tide. And so you get this sort of tiered district uh, every day, depending on where the moon is. Um, I personally lean heavy uh, when I run in games to intrigue and factional conflict. And so Pentola doesn't have. Um, different species of humanoid, uh, but it does have a riot of different factions and people's beliefs. One of the core setting conceits is, um, because the world is super saturated in magic, uh, what you do and what you believe, uh, the sort of gestalt of, of your identity magically manifests as a sort of mutation in you. So uh, last night we live streamed a prototype NPC uh, and in her description, um, we said that uh, her skin has taken on the texture of the linen sails that she sews for a living, and her, the fingers of her right hand are opaline because she's really, really into lapidary and gem work, right? And so the things that you believe about yourself, the things that you do every day, all day, change you and grant you abilities. Um, and so that's been really interesting to work with. So in, in some ways, it means that what your character becomes is sort of written in their flesh um, as much as it is in their heart. So that's been a lot of fun to explore, and I think players have really resonated with that. Uh, and it also is an excuse to write a giant list of mutations. <laughs> and we are, which is important, which we need. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, never I, enough. you know, it's a it's a wonderfully uh, creative and imaginative uh, setting. There is so much there um, to just uh, explore and, and think about. Um, so I, I think it's, it's been really cool seeing you develop it over the years through, you know, zine quest and through these supplements. So I, I, I want um, listeners to know that 
I'll have links up to Beneath the Canals, which we discussed, the Tempting Tefra. I said Tefra. You're, you're saying Tefra, so I'm I'm going to I'm going to change them. As with all things Pentola, there's nothing canonical. Uh, whatever okay. people say at their table. Good, so. because I still have trouble with <laughs> pronouncing a lot of old D&D monsters. So that's good for I me. Mean, to, to be clear on naming, uh, the city ended up being called Pentola because I gave it a code name. Uh, and then I talked about the code name publicly, and now we're stuck with it. Um, and the idea for the code name is that the city sits over a, called, a collapsed caldera, right? So it's warm, it's hot, it's got a lot of people in it. So it's kind of like a melting pot. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to have some sort of code name in my head. So I went to translate.google.com and I typed in cooking pot and I was like, well, it's kind of like Venice. So we'll just translate it to Italian. And I was like, cool. A cooking pot in Italian is Pantola. That has good mouthfeel. Uh, we'll do that. I originally wanted to call the setting, um, Tefra, but it turns out that there is a Tefra RPG already. Uh, which is deeply frustrating, but it's steampunk and it has nothing to do with volcanoes. And the source of magic in this world comes from uh, the uh, uh, the planet's core and is leaked to the surface in um, magma. And uh, the reason it's super saturated is they're living in the tail end of a, a super volcanic winter. And so I was like, oh, that's a great name. And then it was already taken. And I was like, I guess I'll call it Cooking Pot. And now that's just what it is forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, when when I was uh, looking up some different links and stuff, uh, you know, I came across that, and I, but I wasn't going to say anything about it. You know, <laughs> well, it's it's the it's the age old problem of code names must remain internal if you don't want them to become the name, uh, and I goofed that up for sure. Well, I will also have a, a Kickstarter link to a catalog at Chimerical that is running now. I, I like to end these interviews with the questions three. So, Michael T. Lombardi, are you ready for the questions three? Absolutely. Okay, question number one. What makes zines so magical? Um, for me, personally, what makes them uh, magical is they are highly accessible and uh, almost always uh, very, very close to the creator. And so you get this, this very thin shim between the creator's vision and you, um, and you don't have to have saved up 80 bucks to get your hands on it. Uh, and I think that is something that I, I love to see. It gives creators a way to get their vision out to us uh, relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. I mean, the development costs are still uh, astronomical for people who aren't in the know. But um, yeah, I think I think being able to to put together a game product with a small team or solo as some of those incredible people like Luca and uh, Dave Cox are able to do, where they they do layout, writing, art, all of it. Uh, those people are wizards, and I wish them all the best, and I'm intensely jealous. But yeah, being able to pull together zines and then make those accessible, I think, is the real magic. What is something that you've learned making zines that you wish you knew when you started? Uh, <laughs> project management is hard as shit uh, and is its own skill. Um, and I wish I had understood before making zines uh, all the labor that actually goes into them that's sort of hidden from the consumer. Because um, when you when you talk about a zine, it sounds like it's, a really straightforward thing. Write some stuff, throw it on some paper, 
uh, and push it out. Um, but then it turns out that there's writing, there's editing, there's layout, there's art, there's project management, there's marketing, there's all this stuff that kind of like goes into running that project that is uh, a lot of hats for any one person to wear. And so I wish I had known earlier about co-op models uh, and how to pull teams in uh, and and organize them effectively. And I think that's been a superpower for this, uh, for a lot of people in the space in the last two years. Um, ZineQuest in particular has just been a riot of collaboration, which is awesome. And finally, question three, do you have a favorite zine? All-time favorite zine? It's always it's, a tough question. Yeah, it's, this, this one sucks. Uh, can I cheat? And oh, you can absolutely cheat. You know, okay. The idea is so people hear something else cool. So... So uh, I've already plugged uh, Dead Planet and A Pound of Flesh, which I will plug until my last breath. Uh, they're beautiful. The layout is incredible. Um, they spoke so much to me uh, in terms of information design, but also in terms of just like writing really, really punchy. Uh, I did a, a live read with a buddy of mine of A Pound of Flesh, uh, and I think I got to like the ninth unique map style uh, before I just started screaming incoherently. Uh, it, there's so much iteration and cool that happens there. Um, outside of that, I would say that uh, Dave Cox's Rasp of Sand was really foundational uh, and interesting to me. Um, and uh, as far as projects that personally appealed to me uh, from a reading perspective, but not necessarily from uh, a perspective of like a design that I'm happy to like. I'm, I'm looking forward to run. Just uh, a thing that I wanted to get my hands on it and adore was uh, Fiona Geist's discourse from last year. Uh, the campaign ruled. The art rules. The writing rules. The concept rules. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, and to me, it was one of those examples of anarchist art for the masses. Uh, and I love it. And I want to see more of that. Excellent. Well, uh, great conversation. I, it was very interesting to me to hear your perspective on design for a, a lot of these things. And, and I hope it was very interesting to people listening. So great luck to you on the Kickstarter. Again, I'll have links to all this. Michael T. Lombardi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. So yeah, great talking with Michael. Hope y'all enjoyed that. Like I mentioned, I've got a link up to the Kickstarter and a link up to their store with all the different Pentola products we talked about. So be sure and check that out. A couple of other things on the zine tip. Uh, zine Quest is still rolling on. Like I mentioned, there's still some projects that are in the funding period, but time is running out. Best place as always to check this out is over at Panned Atheist Bonebox Chant Blog. So be sure and follow up over there. The, the post is down right this second for me, but I think that they're doing some kind of maintenance on the post and everything. So keep looking back at that. Uh, it's been the best place uh, over the last couple of years to, to follow along with uh, what projects are currently in the funding period and how much time they have left and all that good stuff. Over at Evelyn M's Le Chaudron Chromatique blog, they have put up a video, uh, both in English and French, 
um, about the Zine Quest experience. It goes into a little bit about kind of the playtesting and design of where the wheat grows tall, her successfully funded Kickstarter. So if you want to go and check that out, I've got the link up to over there. And the final thing that I noticed, at least on the blogs, as far as ZineQuest goes, is Grogzilla Issue 2, along with a one-shot adventure, The Duck Crusade, uh, that is still up and funding. So um, that is from uh, the Sorcerer Under Mountain blog, Newt Newport, Sorcerer Under Mountain d101games.com so I've got a link up to that post it'll take you over to the Kickstarter and check that out some other cool stuff that I spotted there was a really popular zine quest game last year called beak feather and bone and so I, this was one where I wanted to back it but I didn't uh, looks like it's by Tyler Crumrine I hope I'm pronouncing that cor correctly it might be Crumrini uh, but anyway uh, the game was a map labeling game, so kind of like a solo game. And they've now released an SRD, a system reference document. They state that it's aimed at artists, designers, writers, and publishers, publishers who would like to build on and or adapt the rules and ideas found in Beak, Feather, and Bone. So you can check this out and, uh, and, and use that to create your own kind of games based on that. So that is a free download over at Itch. And I've got the download, uh, I've got the link for you to check that out. Make sure I'm going in order. I am. All right, this was cool. These are looking really good. This is from Jacob Fleming over at the Gelatinous Cubism blog, gelatinouscubism.wordpress.com. They did a hack of Nate Tremay's Tunnel Goons called Dungeon Goons. They say uh, it's basically uh, all they did was mash it together with elements from games they typically like to run like BX. So they put a little bit more kind of old school D&D style crunch into it, but they put together Dungeon Goons. And then they also have an adventure for it, Shrine of the Scorpion Lords. And printed out, these look like cool little zines. So I've got uh, a link to them talking about that, and you can uh, purchase them or download them if you're interested. And finally, as far as the zines goes, Modifius Entertainment does their own kind of house zine, Modifia. And these are able to be downloaded for free. Number five is out now. And I noticed this over at the tabletopgamingnews.com blog. So if you're interested in, in uh, the Modifius line of games, you can check this out and download it for free. Random tables. All right, let's roll on some random tables. Got a couple of good ones for y'all this week. Bunch of good random tables this week, actually. I had to pick just a couple. Uh, I'm going over to the Box Full of Boxes blog. Yes, boxfullofboxes.blogspot.com. This is Great Jobs blog. And the post is 20 Magical Bird Species. If you are stumped on coming up with a magical bird species, you go over here and roll on this D20 table. Let's see what we get. All right, 11. Nessa's Cloud Jay. A species of birds which make their home in the firmament itself. Cloud jays come in a wide variety of whites, grays, and blacks. These footless birds never land once they hatch, and they have a measure of control over the weather itself, able to cast both fog and gust of wind three times a day. 
don't have any feet because they never land. Nessus Cloud Jays. Let's do one more on here. Let's see. The Savardian Portal Pigeons. Beginning as nothing more than an elaborate entertainment for the storm giants, which make the plains of Savard their homes. These portal pigeons long ago escaped the giants' sky castle homes. Portal pigeons can collectively open up small tears in reality, allowing their flocks to slip around in strange or otherwise impossible angles. The portal pigeons that can open up small tears in reality. So cool and creative stuff here. 20 magical bird species that's over at Box Full of Boxes. Again, all the links I talk about, as usual, over at the Thought Eater blog. Now we're going over to Sea to Worlds. Love this blog. Zowsies is just killing it over at the Sea to Worlds. There's always something good. Always something good over here. I love this blog. Sea to Worlds.blogspot.com. D12 full party mounts. So these are not mounts like, uh, you know, a horse. You know, one guy riding around on a horse. No. This is when the whole party gets on a mount. A full party mount. Need a D12 for this. Where are you, trusty D12? There you are. All right, let's see what we get. Uh, okay, a very, very large wombat within whose pouch the party can ride. There are no amenities. I would not expect any amenities in the giant wombat, wombat pouch, but I'm glad that that was noted. So yeah, riding around in a giant wombat. You know how it is. Adventure to adventure. <laughs> Hop in the wombat. Uh, let's do one more on here. Uh, let's see. Okay, a giant crocodile. They have a terrible side-to-side -side motion as they walk, but are excellent aquatic mounts. It is recommended to dismount and lead them once you get to the shore. Yeah. You don't want to be rocking back and forth on a giant crocodile. So it's highly recommended to go ahead and dismount <laughs> once you get to the shore. So, so anyway, some cool ideas there. D12 full party mounts over at the Sea to Worlds blog. Hump Day Blogorama. All right, let's look at some cool stuff I spotted on the old blogosphere. Always something cool. And I've been going over to this blog recently because they've been putting up a lot of posts that I responded to. This is over at deathtrap-games.blogspot.com. Welcome to the Death Trap. Uh, let's see if they put their name up. Brian Rideout. All right, so put up a post, an incomplete but helpful list of easily ported rules. And then they put up another post about it. And then they've kind of started a whole blog designed to putting these easily ported rules on there. So what does that mean? What is this? So they're putting together a bunch of different kind of rules that are in certain games that you can kind of easily port into another game. So it includes things like spell rolls and and then it has a little description of what the the mechanic is and games that you can find it in right so spell rolls you can find it in dungeon crawl classics index card rpg the black hack dungeon world 
or it'll have something like uh let the shields be splintered you know where you can you get hit and you say no i don't want to get hit we'll just say that it broke my shield instead well that's in the black hack that's in index card rpg so it lists all these little rules that you can easily you know port in your game and it kind of makes a little database of kind of house rules or interesting little rules that only appear in one or two sort of games even common house rules or you know you might find something you know that this may be in a game you don't play like here's one for example it's in blades of the dark never played it was talking about it last week and it mentions the progress clocks mechanic from that game so the idea is that you can kind of scan through these look through them maybe you see a an idea you like and you can port it in your game so i love this it's really cool here's a cool one depletion dice for light uh, it's a modification of depletion dice where combustible light sources can be given a variable variable duration so you know roll a dice to see how fast your torch is burning out or whatever you know what i mean and that's from a game called the delve 2e so anyway i like this a lot it's got the links to where you can go and check it out and you can end up you know following along with this blog where they're adding all these different uh, you know little house rules and everything you can mix and match them into your games maybe even make suggestions i know maybe some listeners have a bunch of suggestions they could they could give to the old death trap death trap games blog so anyway i like that a lot very cool an incomplete but helpful list of easily ported rules and uh yeah so fantasy grounds at their blog they put out the report on the game system usage for the fourth quarter of 2020 5e killed it 5e completely dominated film at 11. <laughs> no but but seriously as if it's not really news uh, that 5e is dominating the rpg space but over at fantasy grounds 71 percent of the games were 5e 71 percent and and then dnd likes like pathfinder one and two combined made up for 13 percent. so really 5e and pathfinder that's 84 percent of all games now fantasy grounds there's not a lot of people using it you know just free form like roll 20 you can just say i'm going to just use dice and just play a lot of people that are willing to pay for fantasy grounds use it because they have you know different mods for for specific games uh, they've got an excellent for example castles and crusades if you're going to run castles and crusades online it's really worth it to pay for fantasy grounds because the tools are so good for castles and crusades it's unbelievable it's got all the books you can just pull in an item just you know it's like perfect but even castle of crusades the whole whole fourth quarter had 700 games whereas with 5e you're talking you're pushing 250,000 you know what i'm saying still you want to see how it breaks down uh what games are getting played uh it's got a list and everything like that but obviously just like when we talked about roll 20 um you know it 5e is basically the hobby you know 5e is like its own thing and everything else is like a you know uh, like a different thing <laughs> uh but uh, it's incredible i mean i saw someone else say you know they were quoting a 
tweet or quoting somebody. I can't remember if it was Jonathan Tweed. I don't think it was Jonathan Tweed. I think it was uh, I think it was whoever the person that wrote Seventh C is John Wick. Maybe I believe their name is John Wick. I know it's a movie too, but. Anyway, the point was, whoever it was, the designer said that, um, you know, D&D being popular lifts everything else up, you know. So even though everything else is like a tiny slice, it wouldn't even be a tiny slice without D&D being so popular. It brings more people to the hobby. So that that's a way that uh, sometimes, sometimes doesn't get mentioned, you know, when, uh, when Watsy gets bashed or whatever. You know, it, it kind of is in some ways. It does suck a lot of the air out of the room. But what air is left is going, <laughs> is helping other games. So, anyway, that's enough on that. All right, uh, Gnome Stew uh, has had a lot of interesting posts lately at the Gnome Stew blog, gnomestew.com. This is JT Evans blogging over there. A number of different people blog over there. Cool post. Uh, Bizarre Traditions. And it's talking about, you know, putting bizarre traditions into your game because sometimes when you're living, you know, when you live on this earth, <laughs> you're not necessarily self-reflective all the time. You don't realize how bizarre some of our traditions are. Like, uh, it says here, rodent predicts the weather. You know, my wife's birthday is groundhog day. So for some reason that one stands out a lot to me, you know, um, but, uh, it's just an example of, uh, kind of, you know, a bizarre tradition because maybe you hold back on putting a bizarre tradition in your game saying maybe this is too weird but then you stop to think wait a second we have the whole thing with uh, a rodent predicting the weather and they also mention make a wish rip the bone <laughs> you know like like a uh, uh, wishbone uh, you know at a dinner or whatever so uh, reminds me i've got a great picture of me and my little brother when we were little uh pulling the wishbone so but anyway, some inspirational world-building material there from J.T. Evans. Bizarre traditions. And then finally, uh, this is over at Role Players Imaginarium. Game Master Advice and Savage Insight. Roleplayersimaginarium.blog. Let's see about a name for this one. I don't... Let's see, under the About Me, I bet I can find a name. Patrick Greenlaw, Patrick Greenlaw blogging over here, put up a post that I thought was really helpful called More Paper Mini Resources. They say a few years ago they did a blog post about using paper minis and now they've updated it. They've got a link to buy all kinds of stuff for it. Paper mini stands, stand-ups, uh, paper craft dungeons, and you know a bunch of little links like that, as well as a link back to the earlier post about using paper minis. So uh, paper minis obviously uh, just like tokens, uh, an affordable alt alternative to miniatures, you know, so having a, a cool blend of paper minis and paper craft and tokens and stuff like that can, can really help you, especially when you got to have a lot of one monster, you know, uh, but anyway, so paper mini resources over at the role players Imaginarium blog. Free stuff. All right, let's look at some cool free stuff. Who doesn't like free stuff, right? Starting over at the Adventure Bundles Patreon. I saw them post this, I believe, on Reddit. Followed over to the Patreon. 
you can become a supporter of Adventure Bundles and you can take a look at their wares here for free. See if it's something you want to support. Down the Rat Hole, an adventure for 5e. Uh, third level adventure. Check that out for free. Over at Adventure Bundles, have a link over to their Patreon. Speaking of Patreons, Adventures Await dropped a free adventure. Trying to lure some folks to back in their Patreon. I've got a link up to their Patreon with the 5e adventure Elemental Fury, Fire and Brimstone. You can download that one. I wanted to mention this. I didn't mean to have this under the free necessarily, but uh, there's a there's a business card RPG jam going on over at Itch. So this still has quite some time to run, but I wanted to bring make people aware of it. Some of these are pay, some are free, but it's you know business you know business art uh, role play. <laughs> <laughs> I took a break to eat and now I'm, I'm, I'm out of whack RPGs that fit, you know, on a business card front and back. So these are really, really cool. It takes a lot of creativity and, and ingenuity. And there's a lot of really smart layout on some of these. So these are awesome. Like I say, some you pay for some are free hosted by Oz over at itch, the pleasure, not business card RPG jam. Be sure and check that out. A lot of submissions already. Uh, I remember Nate Treme doing one of these, and I thought it was awesome. And now there's a bunch of these over here. I see names like Jason Tochi doing these. Caverns of Heresy has got a good-looking one. I see Perplexing Ruins over here, so be sure and check that out. Follow along with it. Hodag RPG. Does Hodag ever rest? I don't think so, because they've got a new pamphlet game. I don't. I haven't downloaded this one yet. I haven't printed it out, so it might not be a game. But it's called Fifty Named Goblins and Other Goblin Stuff. Fifty Goblins to use for fantasy or other tabletop RPGs, or just for fun. Love Hodag's art and creativity, and they're 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 not slowing down. So. This is over at their itch page. Be sure and check out all their games. If you haven't listened to this show the last few weeks, Hodag has had something on every episode because they keep dropping awesome stuff. Be sure and check this all out. Download it for free. Print them off. Get yourself some Hodag pamphlets going. All right. So at the Sw a Swamp and Space blog, a Swamp and Space .blogspot.com, they put up their game. This is Wrecking Balls blog. They put up their game Mazes and Monsters. Essentially a pastiche of Into the Odd and Die Trying, two of their favorite systems. You can download that and check it out, Mazes and Monsters. At the Wayspell blog, wayspell.blogspot.com, they've got a, this is Chris S.'s blog. We've got a one-page dungeon you can download, Well of the Big Stompa. Cool isometric map, check it out. And then Vance A over at Lester's Rambles. Talk about someone else that's been on a roll. They're always putting stuff out. They've got another. I think last week they had two new little adventures. They, they do a, an adventure that ties into a Matt Jackson map usually. And this week they have two more. The Abbey of St. Martin and uh, the Damn Redcaps. And so these both look really cool. 
Vance and, and Hodag together putting out more in a week than Froth manages in years. The final topic. All right. So for the final topic, I'm calling this one, Everybody Hates. Everybody Hates Vancey and Magic, which I know is not true, but it's provocative, right? Spark a little controversy. That's what gets the listeners a little controversy. So, yeah, what was this prompted by? Well, one of the things is a fantastic blog post from Luke Gearing over at lukegearing.blot.im called Magic Outside of Levels that I will get to in a minute. The other thing that it was prompted by, as I've been starting to think recently about what 6th edition D&D is going to look like, because I'm starting to see, you know, the cracks are starting to show, so to speak, with 5e. I can kind of sense it, you know, when you get to that point where you've already had several splat books full of player options, kind of had a bunch of big adventures go out, you know, saturated, saturated things with adventures that they really, you know, take quite a long time to run, you know, so... Unless you're running 5e every week, you know, since it came out, there's going to be hardback adventures you haven't gotten to yet, right? And then they're starting to get to, you know, three settings this this year is their goal, with Ravenloft already being, you know, being announced. So if you kind of look at the pattern of prior editions, you can kind of surmise, you know, there's not, you know, it's wildly popular, not get me wrong, but there's not a ton of design space left. You know, I know the Ravenloft game is going to have more builds, presumably more spells. So when you look at, you know, all, I mean, so many class options now, uh, you know, piling up on each other. And then you're getting into the, you know, the setting splats, I, I, you know, my guess is the next things after the setting splats, they could probably do another big monster book, maybe go to the well for some kind of classic inspired adventure or two. But from there, you're kind of looking at diminishing returns on, you know, on, uh, on, on what it is. And, you know, I mean, that's just my, my thought, of course, 5e is so wildly popular. I could be completely wrong. It could go, you know, could go on for another, you know, five, six years. Who knows? Who knows? But my main, the main thrust of me saying this was I started to think about what 6e would look like, right? Like, what are some of the things that, you know, I was seeing some discussion on Twitter where somebody mentioned you know, they could just go down to just ability scores, right? Which is absolutely true. Uh, I mean, uh, ability modifiers, rather, right? Because it's true because the game has kind of evolved away from the ability scores really being used for things. Whereas in the early days, you know, people were doing roll under with the ability scores. There were certain requirements and everything that were that were keyed off of the ability scores, right? Whereas now almost everything really comes down to the mod and the only thing ability scores are really used for is to kind of to slow down your progression 
by how fast you can raise them to get higher ability mods. But I don't think they'll ever get rid of that 3 to 18 spread because I believe it's one of the only things that they've got in like their SRD where, you know, you can't use it as, uh, you know, rolling 3D6 or something for, for I forget exactly. I should have had that open, but there are some specific things like that and mind flares and some terminology where, you know, they're really protective of it. So it's the kind of thing... I believe it was Pete Jones from Dragons Are Real was talking about their unpopular D&D opinion was to just go to ability mods, but I, I kind of felt like it might never happen just because it's so iconic. There are some things that are like the, you know, the sacred cows that, that even though they could get away from them, they probably never will, right? So I was seeing, uh, you know, I was thinking about things like... Um, Someone was mentioning that hardly any of the designers and everybody are, seem to be using any maps and minis, you know. And I do think that, you know, streaming has had a big part of that because it is really boring. It's it's not so fun to watch people moving their minis around on a map and everything. It's much more, for, for watching a game like that, it's much better for it to be kind of conversational. And so I kind of felt like, you know, one of the things they might do is kind of get rid of specific distances mattering so much, you know, something like 13th age. And I think like Numenera does it where thing, you know, you just kind of ballpark where things are, say they're near or far or very far and that kind of thing. But then I was thinking they've got some skin in the game with, with some miniatures licensing and everything. So they're never going to go fully, you know, full away from that. But although they did, with 5e considerably pull back compared to what you had with third and fourth edition where you had, you know, miniature diagrams and stuff in the books. So then I was thinking, well, what's something that they, you know, what's something that they would consider changing? Cause what's the point in going to 6e if you don't have something to change, right? And you know, maybe it's the fancy and magic. Cause consider this, Every edition has tried to get away from fancy and magic if it can. You look even at the early days and you start adding, okay, well, we got to, you know, we don't want the wizard just sitting around with one spell. Let's at least give bonus spells for intelligence. Or then it's, well, let's at least put them in a, you know, a school of magic so they get another bonus spell, give them something to do. And then it's, okay, well, let's give them cantrips so we at least have something to do and then you know moving on to fourth edition let's let them cast spells over and over just maybe not as powerful and now fifth edition you know at third through fifth edition you, you maybe even latter day second edition you start to see alternative alternative magic builds you know sorcerers or warlocks things that maybe use some spell points mechanics and kind of tweak the fancy magic again because and, and, you know, the only thing left that's even close to it is just the, the vanilla kind of wizard build or whatever, you know. So maybe they'll never get away from it, but they're they're never going to have just everything using fancy magic. Um, you know, and I, I was seeing, I've seen comments about confusion about, wizard level and spell level and stuff like that. And, uh, and I read a really reactive blog post that was talking about that and saying, well, you know, I, I can explain 
spell levels and caster levels to to ten year olds and they understand it. But I'm thinking, you know, they used to have ten year olds working pencil factories. That doesn't make it right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the whole system. It's just that we've grown up with it. That we're used to it. It's not a beautiful spell system. Um, and and one of the weirdest things, and this is where it starts to tie into to Luke's post. One of the weirdest tacked on things with, with 5e and with, you know, I guess with a lot of them is, is spell components, right? Now, I love the idea of spell components because it reminds me of fiction or stuff you'd see with like a witch where they're like, ah, I need a little eye of newt for this and maybe some spider web and, you know, these, these unique uh, items that need to be used to, to conjure up, you know, to make up a potion or things that you need to cast a spell and everything. They're really cool, but they never get used. Like I have not sat at a fifth edition table that maybe use a spell component at all. Never because it's cool by itself, but it's not cool when combined with a whole fancy and, Oh, I got to memorize this tonight. Like, yeah, I'm going to need eye of newt and I'm going to need, uh, you know, toadstools and I'm going to need to think about this spell for four hours. Cause I'm going to forget it when I use it. You know, they, they don't like mix together, you know, it's almost like they took two, you know, they wanted to use the dying earth and then they also wanted to use our traditional understanding of witches and warlocks and, and magic and, and, and just kind of threw it together. So while it doesn't get used at all on the table, I mean, you might be different, but while it's an afterthought in 5e, I think you maybe even some classes might have like a spell pouch or something to where you don't have to worry about it. You know, where it's not something, at least anecdotally for me, that anybody's paying attention to with spell components and this, that, and the other. It's really cool, but it's not cool with the Vancey and magic. And that's where this post came in and why I loved it so much. Magic outside of levels. So this is just taking away the whole how many spells per day. I'm third level. I can cast second level spells now. What level is this? Blah, blah, blah. Let me memorize a list. Oh, I might not ever use this. Oh, depending on the addition, maybe I can. Blah, blah, blah. Find a spell here. Whatever. No, none of that. This all comes down to the components. Forget about level. Forget about all that. And they go through all the basic spells that you find in, you know, like OD&D more or less. And, and give one use items that you have to have in, in order to use a spell. And it's just wonderfully creative and long. You know, it's got a bunch of these. So to use the spell, what was one I was looking at? Uh, uh, where is it? Protection from missiles, okay? So you need a bundle of arrows that each was used to kill. And you snap the arrow, and that gives you protection from missiles for the day. How cool is that? Or once a day, you can have a charm that's made of golden arrowheads that was that were each used to kill a man. You wear that, you have protection from missiles, right? Now, it's just so much more awesome than the whole level and memorize and fire and forget and all that. I just love it. Let's read some other cool ones on here. Because these are all great. Lightning Bolt. 
burn the ring finger of a cloud of a cloud giant and blow the ash at the target. <laughs> now, I'm not saying cloud giant fingers grow on trees, but the flavor. Uh, levitate. A bar of goose fat, hemlock, and nightshade berries are smeared on the body. What? And you levitate. Uh, it's got such a, now the flavor is just outrageous. I love the flavor. Now, of course, some of these, the stuff's really rare, but you can conceive of a way to make it cool to, to uh, how about this one? Haste. Consume the meat of a bird or a hare killed by lightning. Or if you survive being struck by lightning, you can use haste once a day. A whole list of these. These are all just so great. All of them are great. Uh, detect magic. A drop of pure white or pure black dog blood in each eye. Or if you replace one of your eyes with a lump of quartz. You can detect magic. The flavor in this is outrageous. I mean, Luke is a very, very talented, creative individual with this, but I love it. So in reality, is sixth edition not going to have fancy and magic? No, there's no chance. But they are, I'm willing to bet, just like 5e, the only class that's going to even resemble old school fancy and magic will be the wizard. It will, again, to prevent fancy and magic from being as awful as it is. Yes, I know I'm a grognard, but I'm just saying it. There will be cantrips. There will be recovery abilities for spells. There will be all these ways to allow them to do more than one spell a day, you know, for their entire first level or two spells a day, you know, throughout the first two levels. There will be a way to circumvent that fancy and magic that is just uh, a sacred cow that should really be taken, you know, and, and, and discarded for something different, in my opinion. But it will never happen. I know it will never happen. But every alternate caster will have some kind of cool ability, and, uh, and, and the wizard will be what's stuck with the kind of traditional, the traditional deal. But anyway... If it's here's the other thing that I was thinking about with it, just to illustrate my point, and I know I'm I can feel some old schoolers blood boiling maybe a little bit as I'm saying this, or maybe not. Maybe you realize that I'm speaking truth, but think of it like this: when D and D came out, you know, you slowly had all of these other kind of imitation games or, in, or games that were inspired by it coming out, and a lot of the stuff. They copied almost exactly the playable character types, the class concept, concept of leveling, hit points, uh, weapon types, variable weapon damage, all this stuff they would kind of take from it, most of the games at least. What's the one thing that they didn't use? Fancy and magic. Not a one of them. Not a one of them wanted fancy and magic. They're like, we'll take this love this you can keep the magic system we'll do something better you know or do something different you know because it's just hmm. maybe i'm just getting older and uh, and i'm not as wed to stuff i grew up on 
you know, to where, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to criticize it, you know, or I'm able to realize what I don't like about it because I, almost everybody I play does some sort of house rule with it anyway. Like I house rule it to the best of my ability. You know, the best thing I've come up with for old school games, meaning pre like third edition magic is I let detect magic be automatic. It's just an intrinsic wizard ability. Read magic, same thing, because I don't want someone to have to prepare a spell just to be able to read a scroll. That to me is just, it's such, I mean, it's so limiting. You're already limited in so many other ways as it is. And then I'll let them cast anything spontaneously from their books as long as they have a spell slot. That way you get to see something different for the first three levels other than sleep, right? Uh, and th those were some of the best things I ever did for my game. But, um, and while this post from Luke is maybe not completely practical because some of the uh, components would be exceedingly rare, it points to a method of magic using spell components that would actually be really, really interesting and flavorful. Um, so anyway, I've been rambling about that long enough, but check it out. Check out that post magic outside of levels, meditate on it. Do you love fancy and magic? Are you going to tell me it's great? I want to hear from you or do you have other ideas or do you have ideas about things that they might change with six edition? Like what do you foresee as being things that would, would necessitate a new edition in order to implement, right? So you can call in anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Outro. All right. So that is the show for this week. As always, you know, I feel really good about the content that I shared. Delivery. Eh, eh. But I appreciate you bearing with me made it a little bit easier on myself this week. I figured out a better way to record uh, than I was having to do previously. So it went by quicker for me, although the show is the same length for you. But it's a lot of show. It's a lot of show, but I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so thankful that there are folks out there listening. Uh, it encourages me to want to keep doing this because it is a lot of work, but it makes it feel better when I know that people are listening. So Please uh, continue to let other people know about it. I appreciate people retweeting it, sharing it, making comments on social media. If you have friends that are like, oh, what's a good um, podcast, RPG podcast to listen to that's not actual play? That's when you slide in and you say, are you aware of the Thought Eater podcast? You know, <laughs> uh, you know kind of like, uh, uh, well, you know like a young disciple, right? But anyway, I am so thankful to have had Michael T. Lombardi on the show for such a great conversation. Really enjoyed having all these creators on over the last few weeks, talking about zines and zine quest. So again, to all the people that took a chance and put themselves out for zine quest, uh, whatever the outcome, I've got a lot of respect for you uh, taking that leap and doing that. So kudos. And I think I'm going to take a break, at least for the next week, on the interviews. I usually record them on Saturday, and I've got some kind of spring yard work coming up that needs to get done. And so I'm going to have to spend my weekend doing something else. 
but I've got some other uh, folks lined up down the line. So anyway, it just might not happen for next week's show. That being said, uh, remember that all of the posts and everything that I talked about are over at the Thought Eater blog. Just Google Thought Eater blog and you can listen along and look, look if anything really, you know, caught your, you know, piqued your curiosity. All the links are over there. Uh, I love getting messages, anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. I'm trying to get a few more on funny character deaths. If you have a funny character death, don't be shy. Go to anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. I know there's somebody out there listening that's never called in that's thinking, I've got a doozy. Anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Click the message button. Let me know and I'll play it on the show on Friday. So you got a couple days to get it to me. Still want to continue plugging my Patreon, my fledgling Patreon. If you can swing a dollar a month and you listen to the show every week, you enjoy it. Patreon.com forward slash thought eater. Under the outro tab, a couple of really funny memes this week. I always like to put some RPG memes up for you. I think that is all I've got. Uh, So I will talk to you next time. Next you'll hear it will be some listeners with funny character deaths. Make yours another one. Call in. Other than that, it's time for Logan to take us out. Sickly platypus, a psychic grenade. Zeroing in on your mental trade. Gonna help you escape from the grind. Thought eater gonna blow your mind. Boom, 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 boom,